Exodus 11 and 12. Why are we in chapter 11? If you're paying attention, you've been with us, you, you know we stopped off at chapter 6 last week. The reason I skipped ahead was really pragmatic. We take communion today, and communion is rooted in what we see here in chapters 11 and 12, in the Passover meal. Uh, communion is the, is the remembrance of the Last Supper, right, where Jesus has that last meal with his disciples and he, he breaks the bread and, and the wine. He says, this is my body broken for you, my blood shed for you. That meal was a Passover meal and he was changing the narrative. He was, he was fulfilling it, if you will. Uh, so when we come to the table, uh, this is the passage we want to be in. So what I'm going to do is we're going to skip to this passage so that we can take communion today uh, with it in mind. And then next week we'll go back and we'll cover chapters 7 through 10, which are the first nine plagues in Egypt that lead up to the Passover, which is the 10th of the plagues. Okay, so again, pragmatic reason, but uh, important to do this table while we do these chapters. So that's what we're, that's what we're doing. So I hope you have your Bible because I, I'm going to read a big chunk of scripture here to get started. And I want you to follow along with me as we start in chapter 11. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one more plague will I bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people, that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out! you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month every man shall take a lamb, according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. 
Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord." The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Move down to verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come out to the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it's the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go. Serve the Lord, as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. It's the Word of God. There's a lot that we could talk about in these chapters because these two chapters are central 
I want you to, to, to grasp the weight of what I'm about to say. These are central chapters in our understanding of the Christian faith and of the understanding of the Jewish faith, okay? These two chapters, more than just about any other in the Bible, help us understand this question. Who is our God? And it, it's an answer to the question that Pharaoh asked. You remember when we were in chapter five last week and, and Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, the Lord says, or, or what he really would have said was, Yahweh has said this and he tells Pharaoh all that Yahweh is about to do and, and how you know he needs to let his people go. And Pharaoh responds to Moses by saying, who is Yahweh? Who is the Lord that I should listen to him? Who's the Lord that I should do what he commands? And the answer to the question, who is Yahweh, is unfolded in the following chapters in the nine plagues that lead up to this final plague in which God makes it very clear both to Pharaoh and to the people of Israel and ultimately to all of us what kind of God he is. What kind of God he is. In other words, let me, let me rephrase Pharaoh's question just so you can begin to formulate a question for yourself because we should be asking a similar question as we come to this text. God, tell us who you are. Show us what you're like. And, and I think what Pharaoh is, is saying to, to Moses when he says, who is Yahweh that I should serve him? It's not a question of, I don't believe in a God. Because Pharaoh believed in lots of gods. Lots and lots and lots of gods. There was gods for everything in Egypt. Pharaoh wasn't opposed to the idea of the existence of a god. What Pharaoh was saying is, why is your god, Moses, different? What makes your god unique that I should listen to him over all of the other gods that I give myself to? And I think that's the question that, that I want us to be asking as we come to this text. All right? Whether you not you you presume that there is a God who exists or not, I think most of us do. You're, you're in church at least this morning, right? Um, but the question is, what makes this God different than all the other gods that we could give ourselves to? And He answers that question beautifully and fully in these two chapters. What I said earlier is true. I, I could, we could unpack all kinds of things. There's lots of, of interesting details in these chapters that we could spend a lot of time figuring out. But I think the most important thing for us to do as we look at these two chapters is to get the big picture. And, um, and the big picture, for me, my own personal study of this text and hearing of, of teachings on this text, the big picture really came alive when I heard a, a, a pastor named Tim Keller share from this passage what he calls the story of the Lamb. What he's saying is there's, there's something that, that we have to understand about this text. It, it's, it's that when, when you look at what's being said, God is saying, I'm about to unleash the most powerful, destructive force that the world could ever possibly understand. I'm going to send the destroyer. I'm going to send the angel of judgment who's going to come and he's going to kill 
the firstborns. And, and there's one way, Israel, that you'll be spared that. There's one way that you can be saved from this incredible ultimate force, the destroyer that's about to be unleashed in the world. And here it is. It's a lamb. Which ought to strike us immediately as very strange. How about a tank? How about armor? How about something, you know, formidable? The destroyer, that sounds quite daunting. A lamb? Yeah, a lamb. A meek, little, mild, little, fluffy, little lamb. How is a lamb going to protect from the destroyer? Well, if we understand the big picture, the biblical story of the lamb, the lamb shows up throughout the scriptures. And if we understand the whole story, this one begins to really make sense and become quite powerful. So uh, I'm going to try to retell to you, as I heard it from him years ago, the story of the Lamb. All right? There's no new thought here. This is me just retelling a story uh, that I heard from somebody else. But um, there's, there's really some chapters that we're going to look at to help us get the big picture of the story of the Lamb. And the first chapter, if you want to take notes, the first chapter is this. The first chapter is the story of Abraham and Isaac. Okay? Abraham and Isaac. And if you want to flip back, you're welcome to do so to Genesis chapter 22. Now, we've talked quite a bit about Abraham already in our study of Exodus. Exodus and the people of, of Israel here are the descendants of Abraham and the descendants of the promise that was given to Abraham. God said to Abram, through you, through your line, I'm going to create a nation. And through that nation, I'm going to bless the world, right? And so what we've been talking about all along is how, you know, the, the, the promise is under threat. They're in slavery in Egypt. They're, there's death warrants out for their children. It seems like this line of Abraham's family is in jeopardy, yet God is going to deliver. He's provided Moses and he's provided a way for this promise to be maintained. So we're, again, we're going back to the, the origin of the promise given to their father, Abraham, and, and, and the promise was realized for Abraham in the birth of his son, Isaac. Abraham and his wife were very old. She was barren. They weren't able to have children. So for them to believe by faith that God would, through them, make this great people, make this great nation, it was, a, it was quite a leap of faith. We're in our 90s. I'm almost 100 years old here, God. We, we're not supposed to have babies at this age, right? And yet God delivers them this child, Isaac. And so he's the embodiment of the promise. And then we get to chapter 22 of Genesis and something crazy happens, seemingly crazy. We're told this in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Here's the promise. Here's the child. Abraham, I want you to take him and I want you to kill him. I want you to offer him up to me as a burnt sacrifice. This is shocking, right? This is shocking. 
you can only imagine what it would be like for God to come to you and say something to you similarly about one of your own children. What's happening here? And I think as, as, we, li- as we listen to this, as we read it as modern readers, there's a lot of questions that, that come to the forefront of our minds. And the first one is, what kind of a God would ask somebody to do this? This sounds like a monstrous command, right? Kill your son. A lot of people reject the Bible and reject the God of the Bible because of this command. This God sounds horrible. So how do we understand it? Well, the important thing for us to do is to be able to get outside of our Western, modern individualism to understand it, because you have to. We live in the most individualistic society that's ever lived, that's ever existed on the face of the earth. And so it's hard for us to understand the concept here that that Abraham would have understood. And, And here's why. Because in ancient cultures, and in still today, traditional cultures all across the world, they don't view themselves as individuals as much as they view themselves as a part of a family. That they're not individually responsible for themselves alone, but their responsibility as human beings rests within the totality of their place in the family. So if you commit a crime or you commit a sin or a family member of yours commits a sin, the shame doesn't just fall on you individually and everybody is isolated from you. Kind of like we like to think today, my brother, I don't have a brother, I'm just hypothetical, my brother's crazy, right? And all that stuff he does is just my brother. He's just nuts and it has nothing to do with me. In ancient cultures, I couldn't say that. I would say, my brother is nuts and crazy and the shame falls on my whole family. We bear that together. Okay? That's the way it is and that's the way it was. And we, even in our individualistic society, we we still have some sense of understanding of that. Some sense that maybe our individualism is a little bit out of balance. Because when something really bad does happen... Like take, for example, some of the recent lone terrorist attacks in our country. There's a sense in which we want to say, how could this have happened? How could this individual have acted the way that they acted? And what do we often do? We look to their parents. We look to their brothers and sisters, and we we try to find out what's wrong with you as a family that this person turned out the way that they turned out, right? Now, if it was our family, we'd want to say, oh, we have nothing to do with that. He's on his own, right? Right? But there's a sense in which we understand that the connectivity, and that was very much the reality in this day. So here's, here's what's being said. Here's what Abraham would understand about what God is asking him to do. God is saying, Abraham, there's a debt. You're a sinner. And therefore, I have a right to call in that debt. And it doesn't just mean I'm going to call it in on you individually. But I can call it in on your family. Now what was significant about Isaac was that he was the firstborn. And in this ancient culture, the firstborn represented the family inheritance. It represented the family's carrying on. All of the wealth of the family, if you were, was embodied in the firstborn. So for God to say, your firstborn is required of you, Isaac, or Abraham, in order to account for the debt of your sin, Abraham wouldn't have looked at that as some strange request. He would have looked at it as a, actually a very just one. 
God, I know I'm, I'm not worthy or perfect in your sight. I know I have to make offerings to you. This is a fair request. I think what Abraham might have been thinking is not just, God, how can you ask me to sacrifice my son like we might? This seems monstrous. But rather, God, how can you ask me to do that? I know you have a right to do it. I know it's just. How can you be just? And at the same time, the justifier who's promised a gospel promise through this child, how can those things coexist? That's probably what he was asking. So we get to the climax of this scene in verse 7. And it says, And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, I see the fire. I see the wood. Where's the lamb? I know we're going to make this sacrifice to God. He, he, he wasn't in on what was being asked here. He's saying, there's the fire, there's the wood. I got the wood on my back. We're going up the hill. Um, something's missing, Dad. Where's the lamb? Right? And what's the response of, of his father? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. This is faith. God this is just. How can you be just in the justifier? I don't know how I'm going to sort this out. God will provide. That's all I can believe right now. That's all I can believe. And he tells his son, God's got this. I, I, don't, I don't know. And what happens? They get up to the top of the hill. He ties his firstborn onto the wood. And just as he's about ready to take the knife to do the deed, God steps in and stops him and says, Abraham, Wait. Stop. And then what does God do? Does He provide a lamb? Not quite. There's a ram that's caught up in the thicket and God gives Abraham the ability to untie his own son and take the ram and make the ram the sacrifice here. But Again, it wasn't a lamb. So, so there's this, there's this clear indication here that there's a debt to be paid. But we still need a lamb to pay it. We still need a lamb to pay it. And then we get to the second chapter of the story of the lamb, which is here in the Exodus. We see in chapter 11, verses 4 and 5, that God calls in the requirement of the firstborn yet again, right? Moses said, Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, all the way down to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the handmill later in chapter 12, all the way down to the, to the, to the servant in the dungeon. Every firstborn their life will be required. And so we're brought back to the same idea. There's a debt to be paid. And as we've gone through the book of Exodus, we see clearly what that debt is. There is a defiance on Pharaoh and Egypt's part against the Lord God. There is a setting themselves up against him as rivals. And God says, that is, that's unacceptable. That's sin. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. There's a debt here of sin. 
And so he's calling it in again in the same way that would make sense to an ancient culture. It's, it's on the firstborn that the debt must be paid. Now here's what's interesting about this scene. We see here this interesting statement in chapter 12, verse 22, that God is again about to send in the destroyer to carry out this debt collection, if you will, of the calling up of the firstborn. And we're told here that Israel is supposed to take the blood of a lamb this time. They've got the lamb now, but they're supposed to take that blood and they're supposed to put it on their doorposts and on the lintel of their home so that when the destroyer comes, he'll see the blood and pass over them. And there's specific instruction given to them, don't go outside. You have to stay inside. You've got to stay under the covering of that blood lest the destroyer come for you. It's only if you stay under the blood that the destroyer won't take you out too. Which is an interesting thing because you think, well, okay, if God knows that he's delivering his people, doesn't God know who his people are? Why does he have to say that to them, right? Couldn't the destroyer just come and go, okay, you're an Egyptian, you're not, you're good, you are. He would know. You'd think. Well, of course he would know. So what's the what's with the command if you got to stay inside? You got to stay under the covering of the blood. Well, I think there's a couple of things that we can take from this. The first one is this this concept of spiritual egalitarianism, meaning equality. All right? What what's God saying? He's saying, "Look, there's a debt of sin that's to be collected here, and I'm choosing to exercise that debt collection, that judgment on Egypt, but listen, Israel, even though you're my people, even though you're oppressed, even though you're the victim here, you got to recognize something about the nature of who you are. In and of yourself, you're still sinners. In and of yourself, you still can't stand in the presence of a holy God and not face judgment for your sin unless you're covered by the sacrifice of a lamb. Your following of my statutes, your, your heritage, your ethnicity, none of that stuff in and of itself is enough to protect you. You are still sinful people. And unless you're under the blood of the lamb, under the sacrificial cover, the destroyer would take you out too. They have to recognize that. So we have this concept of spiritual egalitarianism, but then we have also this concept of a spiritual substitution again so what can stop the power the judgment power of the destroyer a lamb a lamb a lamb god says if you take this lamb and it dies it dies and its blood is covering your home that will count for the destroyer. In other words, the destroyer can rightly come and execute the judgment on the firstborn. Everybody is in debt. So who's going to pay the debt? And here's the stark reality. As it said here in the text, that night, every single home had someone in it who was dead. Here's the difference between the Egyptian home and the Israelite home. In the Egyptian home, what was dead was a firstborn child. What was true in the Israelite home is that what was dead 
was a substitute. But every home had something, had someone who was dead. And so if you're a firstborn Israelite and you're sitting at the table that night and you're hearing the wailing and the crying of those around you as they're discovering the firstborns in their household have been put to death and you're sitting at a table with your family and you're eating the lamb, you're looking at that lamb and you're, you're cognitively aware that if that thing wasn't dead, I would be. I would be. So the first chapter of the story of the Lamb in the book of Genesis shows that there is a debt to be paid. The second chapter shows us there's a debt, but a substitute can pay for it. And it's a lamb. But they're told this. You're going to have to keep remembering this. You're going to have to keep doing this year after year because this lamb isn't ultimately enough. You need a better lamb because an animal isn't sufficient for a human life. This deliverance that you're going to receive from the Passover is a political deliverance for sure. It's a circumstantial change. You're going to get out of the land of Egypt but that's not the ultimate deliverance you need. You're, you're still sinners who would be destroyed if not for my covering, my covering of grace through the blood of the Lamb. There's a greater deliverance you still yet need. You need a better Lamb. And so we get to the third chapter of the story of the Lamb, which starts off in the Gospels of the New Testament. When in John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist looks across the way and he sees Jesus of Nazareth coming his way and he says, what does he say? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. How did he, how did he have this revelation? Well, he, this was Holy Spirit revelation, but, but this is what the, this is what the Jewish people would have been, would have been aware of and been, been waiting for all along. We know there's a substitute. We know a lamb is needed, but we know there's not, there's not enough so far. We need a better lamb. We need Messiah. We need deliverance. And Jesus shows up and John the Baptist goes, behold, there it is. And behold doesn't just mean, hey, look over there. Right? Hey, check it out. Behold means ponder this. Do you, do you get that? Like, like, really let this soak in. That's the one, right? That's the lamb. That's him. And Jesus, after his baptism and his three-year ministry, sits around the Last Supper table with his disciples and shows them just how he really is the lamb that they've been waiting for. They gather together around that table. He says, go and prepare the Passover meal. And they spread out on the table and he, he's got the bread and he's got the wine. And they've been, 
They've been doing this their whole lives. They've been having bread and wine at their Passover suppers and, and, and the, and the significance of that was again, you know, in haste. You, you gotta be, it's unleavened bread. You gotta run. You gotta be ready. Just eat this as fast as you can. Have your sandals on. Have your, have your stuff girded up so you can go. You're suffering. This is the deliverance from your suffering. That's what the bread and the wine have represented to them. And Jesus turns it around and he says, no, this bread is my body broken for you. This doesn't represent your suffering anymore. This represents mine. My suffering. This, 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 this cup now represents my blood being shed for you. And if the disciples were, were, were thinking about this, we're not told that they were. But they're probably having an Isaac moment. You know? Dad, I see the wood. I see the fire. Where's the lamb? And here they are at this table, and, 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 and here's the bread. Here's the, here's the wine. Jesus, where's the lamb? There's, there's no lamb on the table. We're not told of any lamb at the, at the Passover supper, and, and here's why. Because the lamb wasn't on the table this time. The lamb was at the table. And Jesus makes clear to them This whole story of the Lamb is being fulfilled today in me. I'm the Lamb of God. And just as Isaac was given the wood to be placed on his shoulders as he climbs up the hill, Jesus as well was given the wood on his shoulders to climb the hill of Golgotha, to Calvary. We're told here in Exodus chapter 12 that when they keep this this festival, this remembrance supper that they're supposed to kill the lamb at twilight. And Jesus was crucified at twilight just as the lamb was supposed to have been. But this is no temporary sacrifice anymore. This is the fulfillment. This is the ultimate. This is, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of of the world. His body broken, his blood shed for sinners like us is what we need to be under in order to avoid the ultimate judgment of the destroyer. We are still sinful people, but under the covering of the blood of the Lamb, God's judgment will pass over us. So when we come to a communion table like this, we should be reminded This is the body, the broken body of our Lord. This is the shed blood of our Lord. This, this wine and bread have become the representation of the Lamb. And as we stare at the table like Israelite children back in the days of Exodus, we should look and say, if it wasn't for this death, it would be me. It would be me. There's a debt a substitute can pay it. And the Gospels tell us that substitute is Jesus. There's another chapter yet to unfold in the story of the Lamb, and we'll all be there if we're in Christ to participate in that scene the, the, where the Lamb of God will be on the throne in heaven as He is now, and we'll come around Him, all of us who have been covered by His blood, 
who have placed our faith in his death to count for the death that we owed to God for our own sin debt. And we will celebrate around a new table, the wedding feast of the Lamb forever and ever and ever. Amen. But only if we recognize what kind of God is this? What, 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 what makes this God different than all the other kinds of gods that we could give ourselves to? Well, here's the answer. This is a God, though, though holy and righteous and demanding and has every right to call in our debt by our lives, says, I'll provide a substitute. And I'll make that substitute myself. This is who our God is. This is who Jesus is. And this is why Jesus is worthy of our worship, our adoration, and our thanksgiving when we come to the table.